Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we'll cover the latest developments on Ukraine's EU membership bid following a surprise visit to Kyiv by Ursula von der Leyen, president of the commission, and a call for bold EU reforms by German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock. After that, we'll turn to an exciting conversation with Ambassador Stavros Lambrinidis, who is the outgoing ambassador of the European Union to the United States, for an exit interview of sorts, where we examined his tenure in Washington, D.C., and we covered a very wide range of topics. We hope you enjoyed the show. So, Max, let's start with von der Leyen's visit to Kyiv, which was her sixth visit to Ukraine since February 2022. So that's not negligible. This comes before a big report that the European Union is going to release on November 8th, which is a day before we release this podcast, that looks at all of the aspirant countries and how far they've come on the evolution towards membership. So what do you make of her visit at this particular time? Well, I think it's I think it was symbolically a really important visit coming at what is, I think, a tough time for Ukraine. And she's become quite familiar, I think, with the the sleeper uh, rail car from Poland uh, to, to Kiev. But but coming at a time when uh, there's some discord within the ranks between Zelensky and his top general, the top general uh, wrote uh, pen to piece in The Economist, where he he sort of conceded that, yes, the, the, the front lines were at a stalemate, which then I think Zelensky, President Zelensky and his team were quite reasonably sort of like, now's not the time to call this a stalemate, at least from a, a public optics perspective with the United States still not having passed a Ukraine assistance. But von der Leyen was there to sort of, I think, basically to a preview to say, you've done a great job, Ukraine, in getting and preparing for EU membership and that ascension talks uh, will soon begin. And so that uh, signaling that I think the EU uh, it will uh, is about to take that next step. This podcast will come out after the commission has already sort of made that judgment. And then it'll be in December when the EU likely, hopefully formalizes that. So I think it it's a sign that that Ukraine is still heading down the path of EU membership, uh, despite maybe some of the difficulties on the battlefield. Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty, not just smart move, but also really important move on her part. One, because it keeps Ukraine high on the agenda, not just at a time where there's increasing, not rumors, but just chatter around waning support for Ukraine, both let's be honest, in Brussels and in Washington, but also at a time where all the headlines, literally all the headlines for international affairs are focused on Israel and Palestine. So it's important for her to keep that high on the agenda. And it really lays the groundwork about a month before this summit that you mentioned in Brussels, where EU leaders will hopefully grant official candidate status for not just Ukraine, but Moldova as well, which is likely to happen as well, because there's been a lot of reforms on both sides. Yeah, I think it's a good point that the Israel-Palestine point that, you know, von der Leyen, I think, had got herself in some hot water, or at least some a lot of criticism about taking sort of a very firm stance in support of, of Israel, uh, maybe wasn't quite as balanced as, as others in the EU were sort of calling for. And this is sort of the tricky position that an EU leader has when they're not fully empowered 
to take actions and have to represent all 27 member states. And then when there's divisions amongst those member states, then what do you say? Well, you need to say something. How do you say all those sort of complications uh, come home? And she was sort of, I think, acting and the critique was more as a German politician than as the, the leader of the EU. Well, here it's sort of back to her bread and butter, you know, back in, in Ukraine, where she took bold leadership, probably got out ahead of where uh, France and Germany were, particularly last year in supporting uh, EU membership for Ukraine. And this it, it reports are that this trip was scheduled before October 7th and Hamas's attack on Israel. So I think it's good for her having kept it on the agenda to show we're still going to do this. I should also clarify, I said, you know, candidate uh, status, but it really is about in December, it will be about opening accession negotiations. And that's where she shines because the commission is going to be guardian of all of these chapters, very technical yeah. negotiations on everything. And, and we should also clarify that. So going from candidate to ascension, well, you know, it, it matters. It means that now you're sort of going through each chapter of the key communitaire to sort of adopt EU law. And, and you're moving toward ascension and moving toward joining the EU. But it, it's not as if there's just like, oh, you've, you know, you, you do this Ukraine, then you hit another level. And this is where control over Ukrainian territory will be really important. NATO membership for Ukraine will be very important. We're sort of putting those questions to the side with this. But one of the things that I think is really uh, interesting and important is that finally, I think after about a year and a half, the EU now starting to really get serious about the potential need to do internal reform to prepare for another round of in enlargement. And then EU of 27, you know, sort of works right now. There's definitely things that can be done better. But when if the EU is going to you know, bring in Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Western Balkan countries, and it's going to be an EU of more than 30, then a lot more, a lot, you can't be the way it is and it needs to reform. And this is where Germany and France are beginning to sort of throw out reform proposals. And we had the foreign minister of, of Germany, Annalena Baerbock, uh, last week giving, I think, I think quite an important speech uh, outlining uh, some of Germany's uh, ideas in support for a reform process within the EU. Well, I'm not that surprised that this came from her because I think we've seen her take pretty foreign leading positions in the past on things related to the EU, probably much further ahead than some of her coalition partners, let's say. But she volunteered even things like the possibility of Germany not having a commissioner for a limited amount of time. Because if you think about it, sure, it, it kind of works at 27 commissioners, although we've really massaged some portfolios to kind of make it fit. Right. To, to clarify, <laughs> you know, each each country gets their own sort of commissioner, think sort of, you know, secretary or or undersecretary or deputy yep, secretary, cabinet whatever, member. cabinet member. And well, man, you have to then start creating all these random cabinet uh, cabinet positions of that like don't actually make any sense and just are sort of make make job programs. Well, but, and to be fair, just speaking from the Belgian experience, the in parliamentary system, some ministries do change sometimes. They're called different things. Things are regrouped other ways. But at 30, 33, 34 members, that is a lot of commissioners. And I don't think we have enough files to spread that way. So it's just one example of the kind of courageous political stances we haven't seen from a lot of other foreign ministers who are willing to say, we know it's going to take sacrifices. Let me take the first step in just throwing this out and see what happens. I think it's really important that she did this. And I think this is where I think a lot of countries are living in denial. And I may go on a little bit of a rant here. That, oh, really? That you I never think, do that. I think, 
that a lot of Ukraine's biggest backers in Eastern Europe really want Ukraine to join. But what they also don't want is for the EU to reform. And I think they are believing that the EU can uh, just let Ukraine in. And while that technically might be true, if anything, the dispute with Poland over grain demonstrates the real challenges uh, just from a budget perspective of, of Ukraine becoming a member. And then one of the things that uh, Baerbach mentioned was qualitative majority voting uh, in foreign policy. So one of the major challenges for the EU is actually making a decision on a position on foreign policy. Now, one of the the things about the U.S. system is that it's all internal. You know, the president makes a decision. He, you know, there's oftentimes, especially if you were in the Obama administration, lots of meetings that, that the White House would convene between state, defense, and others. But it's all internal, and the president makes a decision, and that's the policy. The problem at the EU level is that's not really how it works because you have to get all countries to agree. So if you're going to have all countries agree, you're going to have a lowest common denominator foreign policy. And then what we're seeing, and this is particularly true on issues like not like Ukraine that are front page, but of, oh, there's a statement um, about the EU wants to make about the South China Sea and law of the sea and how China is violating it. And then the Hungarians come and veto it, something that's that's happened in the past. And so suddenly it becomes impossible for the EU to actually make just run-of-the-mill foreign policy statements. But if you're a small state like Estonia and you're 1.3 million people, well, you have a veto. And it's just not sustainable, especially if the EU can be more than 30 countries. And there's oftentimes, I think, a, a counter-argument that, well, the EU has sort of worked well despite everyone having these vetoes. The EU's gotten a ton done. And I totally agree. It's a miracle. I don't understand how the EU can get all, all of what it gets done. What I would say is it doesn't strike me as, sustain, as sustainable, particularly if the EU is going to begin to be more coercive, especially when it comes to rule of law and democracy. If it's going to start throwing a hard line against you know, Hungary or you know, the former law and justice or the current, still current law and justice government of Poland, then the counter response is that countries start taking hostages. And that's what we're seeing with the Hungarians. And we see it in the United States with the filibuster. There was a norm against using it. And then in the 21st century, it's just now you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything. That used to not be the case. If the EU is going to expand, it's going to have to make reforms. And I think that's something that there's going to be a lot of tough pills for everyone to swallow. And I think it's easy for a lot of these countries that are very rhetorically supportive of Ukraine to have maybe gone ahead a little too far before thinking about it and saying, yeah, we'll throw in membership. They absolutely should be members. And then pausing for a second and say, well, actually... It was easy for us to support military aid, other types of financial aid, but all the really difficult files that they're going to have and difficult issues they're going to have to fix, they didn't want to touch before, and they didn't come up before. We're really seeing now a big push, a big focus on enlargement, which is also why we see von der Leyen has traveled a ton in the Western Balkans, Ukraine, Moldova, etc., because the it's like the eye of Sauron is finally focused on enlargement. And that's where it's going to happen for so many different things. And not just foreign policy. The hardest decisions are going to happen for things that are technically already very integrated, but are going to have to take a different shape. And I think one other sort of big issue with the internal reform that, you know, I'm not an EU lawyer and there's going to have to be lots of EU lawyers that are going to be engaged in this process. It's okay, but, they have a lot. Yes. <laughs> but is the question of whether you can do reform without a new treaty. 
and what are the kind of boundaries and limits? So what the Germans are really hoping for, and it seems like this is where everyone in, in the EU is sort of going for, is remembering back to like 20 years ago when they were doing constant treaties and having to have, you know, get have a French referendum, have a Dutch referendum, an Irish referendum, and my God, getting all 27 countries to approve this and their parliaments and their publics. Uh, we don't want to do that. And everyone's terrified of that. And so there's this effort to look at what can you actually just change within the treaties and things like qualitative majority voting for foreign policy could be one of those, you know, maybe adjusting the commissioners could be one of those. However, I think this is in some ways misguided for two, two big reasons. One, the budgetary implications of Ukraine joining are just going to be massive. And I don't quite see how slight tweaks to the EU system can really make this work unless the EU basically has tools to generate revenue on its own to provide, you know, cohesion funds and also European public goods, whether it's military spending or, or, uh, or stuff for the green transition. So I think there's going to be <laughs> this need where in order for Ukraine to actually become a member, you're going to have to start going into treaty form. But I think it's largely also misguided because I think it's misreading the political moment. I think that people in the EU are EU officials are really scared of their own shadow and sort of think like, oh my God, if we had to go to voters, we would get annihilated. And I just sort of don't think that's true, especially in a post-Brexit environment. And everybody say, what would France do? What would France do? Well, France just had an election of a very un unpopular incumbent president that had, you know, seemed a lot like, give a very Hillary Clinton-esque vibes in that election. And he got 58% of the vote. I think of a vote to strengthen the EU, to make the EU stronger and pave the way for Ukraine membership. I think that gets above 50%. Denmark, we have uh, Otto, who helps uh, you know, run this program, is from Denmark. After the war began, Denmark had a vote to whether to join the EU military instruments. And guess what? Nearly two thirds or two thirds voted in favor of it. That was a referendum. So I think they're really underestimating the potential will and support to strengthen the EU and to make the EU work better. And if it's messaged that way, I think it could happen. And guess what? If not, if that failed, well, then you're stuck with what you got. And then that's kind of okay also. Sure. So. <laughs> I, but I think that requires, and that's probably something they know, that requires an acknowledgement that they haven't messaged the EU very well for a long time because they've been afraid of their own shadow about the EU for a long time. Because every time something good happens, it's thanks to the national level. And every, every time something bad happens, it's Brussels' fault. Yeah. So you have to fix years of that kind of messaging to then get to the point where you can get through to voters and explain why this can be good. So I think, I think maybe one final thought here. I think two things on that. I think one, thank you to the UK for doing <laughs> Brexit and you, for demonstrating to everyone in the EU how important the EU is. And what you saw after that is all these sort of anti-EU parties quickly dropping exit. You know, Frank, you know, Mary Le Pen wasn't campaigning on leaving the EU, changing the EU, sure. Curtailing the EU, yes, there's lots of, you know, populist parties that argue for that, but not for leaving. Now, so there would be an argument about whether we want the EU to be curtailed or a stronger EU. And I think that's an argument that, that I think proponents of the EU underestimate their chances in part because the Maastricht Treaty just turned 30. And so that means if you're a Western European citizen that is under the age of 30, you have only lived your life as a, a citizen of the European Union. The notion that like you, you're not going to want the EU to be stronger, I think, especially with the new generation of voters, is something 
that I, 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 I think there'd be strong support. Now I could be wrong. You know, there, we will look for polling data. I'll ask them. Yeah. For my, I think the generational picture is more complex than that. Yeah. It's more complex, but on the other hand, I think the winds, and especially given what we've seen over the last decade of the EU coming out of every single crisis stronger, I think there, we're at a moment where the EU should stop doubting itself so much. And I think moving towards deeper reform is frankly the path that really probably opens the door to enlargement. I'm really worried that the notion of sort of a technocratic reform that will let these countries in is just not going not gonna to bear fruit. Yeah. And they have a lot that they can campaign on, to be honest. Just they have to make it very visible what that would mean for people. Yeah. EU officials may not be the best at that. Re require we'll national <laughs> politicians to really lead here. But but with that, we have a, a really excellent interview. So stick around for our interview with Stavros Lambernides as his sort of exit interview as he departs Washington later this year. We are thrilled to be joined by His Excellency Ambassador Stavros Lambernides for what I would like to describe as sort of an exit interview as his time in Washington, D.C. comes to a close. Ambassador, welcome to the Europhile. It's great to be here, Max. Thank you. Ambassador Lambernides has been the ambassador of the European Union to the United States since March 1st, 2019. And from 2012 to February 2019, he served as the EU Special Representative for Human Rights. In 2011, he was the Foreign Affairs Minister of Greece. And between 2004 and 2011, he was twice elected as a member of the European Parliament with the Greek Social Democratic Party, PSOEC. He has also served as vice president of the European Parliament from 2009 to 2011 and vice president of the Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs Committee and was the head of the PSOIC delegation from 2005 to 2011. Well, that's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. It's a long, long bio. Yeah, it's a long bio. Uh, <laughs> but you did not mention my first profession, the one that I studied, is a lawyer. And in fact, an American trade lawyer in Washington, D.C., back in the late 80s, early 90s. So that must have come in handy. It came in handy in diplomacy and politics, certainly. Yes. And we should say that you are not leaving the United States, that your next posting will be up the I-95 to our sister city, New York, our sort of second city, I would put Washington. I don't think they would say sister they city. They wouldn't say that. <laughs> uh, up to New York City to be the EU ambassador to the United Nations. I want to thank you so much for being here. And maybe we could start by just having you look back on your tenure. You were here during a very eventful time, the end of the Trump administration. We obviously had elections. There was COVID. And now, and seemingly sort of the revival of U.S.-EU relations, or maybe not even the revival, but U.S.-EU relations now in sort of an unprecedented place, I think, in terms of their the strength of the relationship. How do you look back on your last five years here in Washington? Max, I think you described it to a great extent. I came here in March 19. I came here during the Trump administration where the rhetoric about the European Union itself and the importance of the EU-US relationship more broadly was sometimes challenging. And it was very important at the time to ensure that I could communicate both in this town and around the country why the EU was not the enemy. In fact, it was and it is the biggest source of prosperity and security for average American citizens outside of anything that any particular U.S. administration might do, in the same way that the U.S. is currently the biggest source of security and prosperity for Europeans outside of what we can do. This is the biggest relationship in the world. 
I also had to deal with, more specifically, a very contentious trade environment that risked undermining the biggest economic partnership in the world at a time that us being united and dealing with common challenges, including combining our economic strengths in order to be able to ensure that fair trade would prevail in the world with a rising China, trying to impose different rules and different understandings on that. So that's how I started. And then the Biden administration came in, and uh, it was an entirely different kind of uh, of engagement. In some ways, I'm not sure what was tougher, because with the Biden administration, people wanted to work with us on everything, whereas before, maybe they didn't want to work on those many things. And the everything for an ambassador means that you have a thousand files on the table that need to be addressed concretely. And I think that what I was really proud about is how the European Union in Brussels, our leaders, everyone working back, came with concrete proposals, skin in the game in terms of how to take the relationship several steps further. We didn't sit back waiting for a new administration to come in and say, hey, this is what we think we should be doing. But we said ourselves, this is what we think we should be doing. And it worked fantastically. I mean, if you look at the past two, two and a half years, if you look at not only how we have dealt with crises, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but also how we've worked with opportunities that we identified in order to be able to boost both our capacities as Americans and Europeans to be even stronger together, but also look at the rest of the world and see how it might be possible for us together to build alliances that are supremely necessary when the tectonic plates are shifting the way they are. You just said that you started here in Washington, D.C. under a very different administration and a series of crises has befallen the relationship. But I'm curious, over your time, what do you see has been a constant in the U.S.-E relationship? Because I would hope that there was at least some kind of constant even in the previous administration. And what is something that's that you feel has really changed a lot under a different administration? The understanding and the and the celebration of the EU-US relationship for those in the know. And those in the know are very powerful people. They are leading congressmen and women and senators. They are members of the State Department under any administration or even the White House. That has been a constant throughout my tenure. And that has actually managed to ensure that this relationship remained strong even during turbulent times. I am deeply grateful for this bipartisan appreciation. I think what was a catalytic moment, without a doubt, in the past couple of years was the war in Ukraine. That focused hearts and minds on not just the intangibles of trillions of EU investment in this country and six million jobs created and all that that is spread around the country so everyone there understands and knows it, but it's not a figure that resonates making sure that the new autocratic imperialist in the world doesn't succeed in bending the will of American and European leaders to his own through brute force, that is understood by everyone. And what was understood at that time as well is that Europe was not some kind of a kumbaya alliance of countries that are simply, you know, have strong economies and nice products but that we had the teeth and the political vision and the capacity to stand up in the plate there and just hit the ball out of the park. We were the first who came out with sanctions immediately, almost immediately after, you know, this war started, working in tandem with the U.S. Sanctions that have hurt the EU economy much more than anyone else. You cannot defy gravity. We're next to Russia. And it didn't matter one bit. 27 leaders unanimously every time voted for those sanctions. That was a message here that the EU actually is strong, is united, and is capable of making a decisive difference on the ground when it comes to geostrategic existential interests of the United States as well. That, I think, was a turning point in many ways, but not the only one. 
There's often times, or at least the way I see it, is that Washington has had historically very little fluency in, in the EU, very little understanding of how the EU is structured and, you know, not what's the difference between the European Commission and the Council and, and viewing oftentimes the EU as just sort of similar to NATO. It's just a club and why don't you just let more countries in? It seems, though, the fluency in Washington and sort of speaking EU has increased over the last few years and during your tenure. Do you think that's the case? Or is there a greater understanding of the EU? Have you had constant efforts to sort of explain the EU and how do you do that? You always have to do that. And I, I am sure that my successor, once I leave, will come in. And if a new administration comes in, she will have to do the same thing. Explaining. You always have to explain the EU. It is not obviously just a country. In many cases, countries are known here and they matter because there are also huge European diasporas in the United States. I mean, these are voters. They're out there. You know, I'm a German American. I'm a Greek American, right? I'm an EU American? Nah, mm -hmm. no one really says that, right? So the system is not really, you know, wired to appreciate politically the EU because of grassroots efforts. It has to be more of an explanation at a higher level. How do I explain the EU? The first thing is I explain to people how we were created and why that DNA is unbreakable and therefore very important to the United States as well in its interests. We came out of the Second World War after having killed each other and having committed the biggest human rights violation in recent history, the Holocaust, in European hands. And we came out and decided that we would never allow ourselves either the desire or the means to perpetrate such atrocities ever again on each other or anywhere else in the world. It was fundamentally a political project that came out of a labor of hate with the aim of turning it into a labor of love. And the money aspect that people know today about, the, the second biggest open economy in the world, you know, no borders, the single market, that was at that time just a glimmer in someone's eye. It was not what brought us together. This is why Russia, for example, is not going to win this war. It is inconceivable for Europeans, having come out of this, to allow Europe and ourselves to slide back to those days of violence. We were built to stop it. We managed to create in a matter of decades the most peaceful and prosperous open region in the world, and we will not allow any Putin to jeopardize that. It's as simple as that. But unless you understand where we came from, you're not able to understand the strength and unity that Europeans show every day with all the difficulties of getting to that unity sometimes. Of course, it's not, we're 27 separate countries. That's the second point that I make to people. I say, you know what, you think that we are that different. And in fact, yes, we're not a union. We are a confederation of independent countries. But this is not a club. The requirements to join the EU are so stringent because they require countries to change their legislation, their economy, to fit the European market and the European values, because otherwise you can't get in. In the end of the day, our countries are remarkably aligned in all those things that you're aligned here as different states. So yes, we're a confederation, but we're very aligned. Proof positive of that, another point I make, is if you like the crowning achievement of the EU, the single market. How many times have I heard? I mean, I hear many things about the EU. Many times it's misrepresented. Other times I meet people who know it so well that, frankly, I have to have confessed to myself inside that they know it better than I do, you know, because there are some real Euro wonks uh, that you mentioned in this country that know it fantastically. 
Some of them may be sitting around this table. I don't know. But look, one thing that is a standard thing for, for many people is in the end of the day, when, you know, when they're in a bad mood in particular and all that stuff, you know, we've done something, you know, we have a, a law on, you know, regulating big tech and all that stuff and ensuring that markets are open and free and not controlled by a few big tech companies and all that stuff and innovation therefore can flourish and all that. Some people come and say, oh, my goodness, what a bunch of bureaucrats. What a bunch of bureaucrats. And I say to people, you know what? First of all, I don't get it why everyone working for the U.S. administration is a civil servant, but everyone working for the European administration is a bureaucrat. But okay, <laughs> let, let, let's put that aside. But we are, Europe is the biggest deregulation experiment in the world. It's never happened before. 28, now 27, independent countries have made the decision to abandon their domestic laws and to replace them with one common set of laws and principles, especially in the economy, that has allowed us to knock down the borders between 27 countries and to create the biggest free market in the world for goods, for services, for people to go anywhere they want to, right, for finance. That is the biggest deregulation experiment you can imagine. Of course, in this context, you need to replace it with one set of regulations, and that takes time, and that takes people actually working on them. But it works. And the final thing that I say is the following, Max, and I mean, there are many things you can say, but just to bring it into the context of the U.S. system, we have the European Commission, which is, in fact, our administration, right? It's comprised of one commissioner from every one of our 27 member states or one secretary in your system. And each commissioner is appointed by the elected leader of their member state. This is exactly the way that the U.S. administration is also appointed. An elected president appoints an elected secretary of this, secretary of that. There's no difference there. We have a European parliament that is the biggest free parliament in the world, representing through open elections, uh, 27 different countries that actually makes decisions and passes laws in coordination with the European Council, indeed, a third institution, which is those leaders, those 27 leaders, right? This is, again, not that different from the way that laws are being made in the US. As I think of the EU, I also think of fundamental kernel of the American constitutional structure, which is federalism. Like the U.S., exactly in the EU, you have independent countries, states in the U.S., where governments and citizens make decisions, have made decisions to abandon some of their sovereignty and to pull it together in Brussels, because we believe and we feel that doing so strengthens every one of the 27 countries autonomy and capacity to be effective in a huge world, that every single one of those countries will be very weak to be able to address it. In other instances, we keep sovereignty to ourselves, like states do, in the European context, as opposed to the U.S. context, for example, defense, foreign policy is a sovereignty and in, is a national sovereignty. And in many other cases, we share sovereignty. So when you look at the discussions that happen at the Foreign Affairs Council, for example, you have Member states who have the the right for defense and uh, and foreign policy deciding very often common positions that then become the official position of those countries. This is a different kind of federalism, but not really that different. So, okay, if anyone from your listeners has stayed awake for this answer, 
and hasn't tuned off, I'll tell you, first of all, thank you. And second of all, I hope that you understand that the European Union and the United States are the two biggest democracies in the world. Our economies are the two biggest free open economies because of the way that the EU was also instituted. And our capacity to keep working together on the fundamental challenges of our times will guarantee America's success and Europe's success and may even bring some hope to a world that is losing it. Let me, I want to ask maybe an operational question of sort of how you're able to do your job, because it seems like you have the hardest ambassadors post here <laughs> in Washington, where you not only have to explain this incredibly complicated organization isn't even the right word, you know, state-like entity of the EU, but then there's also, there's you, and then there's 27 EU member states that all want FaceTime with the White House and the president and want to have their own bilateral relationships. How do you quarterback this? Do you quarterback this? Do you work with all the e EU countries? Do you, how do you guys get all on the same page? Yeah. Uh, do you or, or, you know, how do you approach? Uh, I quarterback it by definition, Max, but don't assume that this is an, a big ask. Our member states, our 27 member states uh, are extremely interested in and demanding of EU cooperation in the United States and EU work. When it comes to Ukraine, to give you an example, we have outreach together uh, with uh, other EU member state ambassadors, uh, Congress, it, demonstrating that strength and unity that people want to see when they're thinking about the European Union, where many of our member states are doing it individually as well, but they also appreciate the power of the visual and the message of us all being together, right? Because it's the collective EU aid that is making the difference here in EU member state aid. In the trade field, where the EU has, in fact, exclusive competence, it is supremely important for everyone to be able to coordinate, cooperate, know what is on the agenda, know what's happening. So in their own outreach in this country, for their own interests, their own companies, they know you know, what the advantages of the EU policies are and what the issues that may need resolving with the US are, uh, because then we bring again a collective power in uh, as EU and member states. So it's not a challenge at all. Before I came in this town, people told me, oh, this is the most bilateral town in the world. Everybody just cares about, you know, their own stuff. Well, tell you what, every ambassador, including the EU ambassador, does visit states. Unless you go down to where the economy in this country really happens, which is a state level, where many of your companies are actually investing and creating the jobs and all that stuff, talking to people that are outside the Washington bubble, unless you do all that, you have a very skewed understanding of this country and you've actually diminished your capacity to be effective, uh, you know, where it counts. So we do this. Right before COVID, without knowing how we received, I told the 27 members, I said, you know what, how would you feel if I helped organize a joint outreach. So all 27 ambassadors together, we go to a state together. I was afraid some people would say, why would I want to do that? I mean, I, I want to go promote my own trade and investment. Why would I want to do that? And everyone said, my goodness, that sounds like a really great idea. Because when you have 28 ambassadors in the state, you understand a governor immediately appears, doesn't matter what party or what issue, right? I mean, they realize the people in the state, the voters in the state coming from 27 European countries having at least the heritage there are a very big number and a very influential number of people. You're able to communicate a collective economic footprint in that state that, that affects hundreds of thousands of people that is tangible to many. 
you are able to blanket the state for a day and break up in groups and go and speak about all issues with, the, with civil society and business and others. And we did it and we've done it a few times since and it's been extremely successful. So I wish I could tell you this was a difficult task for me or a difficult job, but I've realized and I'm grateful to our member states that it is something that is that people thirst for. I have to say that's great to hear that you are able to not just divide and conquer, but really complement each other and augment each other's capacity. I think that's that's really good news uh, at 27. But we're talking increasingly about not just 27, but 30, 34, 35, 36. It seems that the attention across member states has really crystallized now to what it's going to take to do this work at 30 plus members. Ukraine really forced everyone's mind to focus on something like this. Do you think there is yet critical mass of member states? I mean, we've seen proposals from some of them. We've seen expert reports on uh, from some others. Is there enough political will to make those really difficult transformations to continue to be a really effective European Union at over 30 member states over the next 10, 15 yeah, years? Yeah, no, look, the, the, the answer is yes. It's, a, it's, 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 it's obviously a difficult road. But the answer is yes, because our neighborhood, and that's what we are, you know, we have candidate countries to eventually enter the EU. Our neighborhood is both geographically and politically tied to the EU, and most important, can be tremendously difficult and dangerous if it slides in the wrong direction. And for every one of these countries in a neighborhood that are candidate countries, almost everyone, the EU accession process is sort of the, um, you know, the North Star. It's, it's, what, it's what they also realize is important. Therefore, the political will is there. The difficulties are also there. When you have a lot of countries in making decisions by unanimity uh, or by special majorities and all that stuff is clearly an issue that many countries are discussing. How do we make sure that this thing continues to function effectively? But look at the case of Ukraine, the most recent case you, you, you mentioned. Ukraine received a candidate status for the EU. Since 2014, uh, after the Russian invasion of Crimea, it is already associated with the EU to special agreements, and it is making, since then, a remarkable amount of progress in, as we talked at the beginning, aligning its laws uh, and its regulations and everything else with the EU. Even today, in the middle of a war, the Ukrainians are working to meet and to exceed the standards that they know they have to meet in order to become a member of the EU eventually. There are no shortcuts in this process. For both Americans and Europeans, the tremendous importance that this accession process will have in terms of, even from today, creating a Ukrainian economy that is strong and resilient. Uh, think of the critical minerals Ukraine has. Think of the, uh, of the food uh, that it has. It, its industry can be among the strongest in the world on those issues. Our investment now is not just an investment for them to beat the Russians, which is existentially important. It is at the same time an investment that is transforming Ukraine as we speak into the strong economic democracy that it is in the fundamental interest of Americans and Europeans to, to achieve. Fighting corruption, another major issue. To come into the EU, you need to have and to prove that you have independent institutions, laws and effective implementation of them to eliminate corruption, or at least to fight it, you know, uh, you know, on a constant basis. All those things are a result of the EU process of accession. So we do understand politically in the EU that this is extremely important for our own security 
extremely important for the well-being of our neighbors and future uh, partners as EU members. Uh, and we also know that it's going to be a difficult path and that we have to figure out ways to make sure that the EU continues to function as effectively as possible with uh, with more member states, as you mentioned. I think that's one other way where I've seen the EU transform as an actor that looks not just at itself, its single market, et cetera, but at its neighborhood as well, as the importance of accession, of good accession and believable accession, I think, for the partners as well, but also in other places where it's acted as a more hard security actor when it looks at the southern Mediterranean, for example, understanding this uh, flexible geometry of partnerships in its neighborhood. I think that's that's been a big evolution. Maybe one sort of final question. So there was just a USEU summit. I, I, I saw the video of you uh, there at the White House with with uh, well, hidden, hidden. I, I hope were, yeah. behind my leaders. Well, there's multiple presidents. There's there's lots of people, but you were there at the table. You know, I think that from the outside view. There was a lot of hope that the summit was going to lead to breakthroughs on on the green steel issue and 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 resolve a lot of the trade disputes. It, it didn't seem to make progress there, but it did seem to you know really have essentially good vibes in some respects of EU leaders being welcomed into the to the White House and the summit gaining a lot of attention. When you look forward, you know now that you're you're heading out the the door soon. When you look forward at the US EU relationship. What are sort of the next steps to build this partnership? Is it knocking out some of these core issues on, you know, the fights over or trade agreements, or is it something bigger? Do we need to make progress on these sort of nitty gritty things, or is the EU SEU trade in tech council sort of going to make progress over time? And and how, how how do you judge sort of seeing this relationship evolve? And what are you kind of looking out for now that you'll be moving on uh, to, to New York and, right, and so looking at things. this relationship? I, I, there's a tremendous amount of untapped potential in the EU-US relationship. As remarkable it is, as it is and as hugely boosted as it has become in the past few years, there is an economic partnership that is untapped. There are challenges now and opportunities uh, when it comes to anything from supply chains on tech and chips and all those things to supply chains for a green economy that I am supremely focused on and we are in Europe supremely focused on and we're not there yet. Therefore, I would be placing a lot of my emphasis and focus on how to make that happen. The Trade Technology Council you mentioned uh, is indeed addressing uh, very effectively in the past uh, couple of years, many of these issues. But again, when I look at the potential progress ahead of us, I'm just thinking we're starting. We're not starting. We've done a lot, but we're starting. The trade disputes have to be resolved. Uh, they are legacies of the past, uh, and they're legacies of a weird past, uh, a past uh, pre-China ascension, a, a, pra a, a past pre-Russia, uh, uh, you know, trying to fertilize itself into a new world order. This is just simply uh, not okay to have as a thorn in our sides because it also reduces our capacity to turbo boost the economies together. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't mean to sound like this is an easy process. It isn't. Uh, I mean, there is, we are huge markets. We're, we have huge companies. We compete. Our companies compete with each other, right? And around the world. The question is, is that competition in some areas also, or in all areas, also capable of ensuring that our innovative capacities that exceed anyone else's 
that are penetrative capacities in economies around the world who need fair investments and not the kind of you know debt chokes or sovereignty losses that other other others come and give them is that capable that capacity capable of being um, enhanced and my answer is it is although we will always be competing at the same time it doesn't matter the problem for our companies classic example belt and road initiative the chinese come out a few years back and they say we're going to be giving all this money to different countries right good on them I mean, they decided that's the, the way to go. Uh, they realized that in some instances, they, you know, they could fight some corrupt leaders that could, you know, uh, you know, give some money to maybe create some debt chokes, uh, you know, grab a uh, critical minerals mine here or a forest there or a port there. Um, what were we doing? I mean, instead of looking at what others do in this transatlantic partnership, because we are just too big and too important and too powerful together, yes, I am annoyed when people do bad things, but I'm more annoyed when we don't do good things. And we can, and we are increasingly, and the next few years will be a remarkable opportunity for us to look at that. You need to have green investments. My goodness, they cost trillions. How are we going to support and incentivize our, our, our companies and our industries to do this in the right way, respecting the open free market, but also giving opportunities to people, you know, avoiding some companies, you know, grabbing the, you know, the, the market and then sitting nicely on it and innovation dies because no one can enter it. And then maybe, you know, the Chinese or others come with their big money and the big, you know, uh, champions and, you know, uh, take over. We can't allow this. How do we do this? How do we do this effectively? How do we then... Look at the rest of the world and go, you know what? We have achieved those economies of scale when it comes to innovative, amazing, sustainable green energy technology. And we can give it to you for a very low price, for a very low price, without any strings attached. And you can, as we did, transform your economy because many economies around the world, young people, they have no reason to go to the steps where they can leapfrog to the economy of the 21st century, whether it's tech or green, and they have the, the, the capacity and the people to do it, who's going to help them? I hope we, we just announced a major 300 billion infrastructure projects around the world, we call it the Global Gateway, you know, to do exactly that. And that is going to countries and saying, you know what, you have critical minerals, great. I'm not going to try to invest in, in, in you so you extract them and then you give them to me back in Europe to process them and do what I want? No. And I'm not going to be bringing a million European workers, cheap workers, you know, to your, you know, to, to, the, to do this investment so none of your people get jobs, but they can be produced kind of maybe cheaply, but the rest of the society basically just dwindles away because, you know, the, the technological expertise, the actual salaries are not there. I'm going to ensure that you have an investment right? A fair investment where you extract, you process the minerals yourself. And then we see how the, you can, they can even be put into a global supply chain, looking at what elements of, let's say, a car battery or a green you know, turbine or whatever, right, may need. So you have your whole economy boosted. It's an entirely different offer, an entirely different proposition. This is what we can do. If we work together, bring those economies of scale down for, for, for the green effectively, that is going to be good for our business, good for our politics, good for our place in the world, good for the rest of the world as, yes, I am going to the UN, sustainable development goals, as we are committed to supporting them. And we are the biggest people 
doing that really out there in the world, but but not in a coordinated manner. That's what I see as the future challenges and, and, and opportunities, um, guys. I think, my goodness, it's going to be hard. It's going to be real hard. Uh, but we don't have a choice. We just do not have a choice. And I think that everyone around the table at the TTC, at the summit, feel it in their guts. We don't have the choice. That's the negative, the fear. The positive is, and isn't it great that the choice that we have to make is between Americans and Europeans? Sharing freedoms, sharing values, sharing economic visions. My goodness, could that could that be great for the world as well? Great. Well, Ambassador Lambernides, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, your tenure in Washington. You've been a, a wonderful presence around town. It's been been great to get to know you over the last uh, few years. To to dine at your house on on numerous occasions. Yeah. You have a they have a, a great residence and a great a great chef. But really have have enjoyed having you here here on the Eurofile, and you will be sorely missed in Washington. But fortunately for us Americans, you won't be uh, going too far, and you'll still still be in our in our great country. Well, thank thank you, sir. And on behalf of Europeans as well, thank you for your service and service to come for well, thank, for all of us. Thank you, guys. I'm not gonna look. I'm not gonna tire you with with a platitude, uh, or my sound like a platitude to to many people. But I will say this. Thank you to CSIS. Thank you for your work. Thank you for embracing me. And thank you for embracing my successor, I'm sure. From the moment I stepped my foot here, I received advice. I received, uh, my, my mind was blown with what this country offers, perhaps better than, than, than most countries in the world. Just the, this intellectual debate, exercise, thinking out of the box, getting ideas, that openness and freedom and freshness. Thank you. Uh, you have made my job, and I, I don't know if you believe it, but I, I assure you, so much better in terms of how I've tried to do it, and so much more enjoyable, frankly. I'm sure you'll be invited to, to more dinners, honestly, <laughs> but I'm also happy to, uh, to just send over some. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.